Two years ago, a 7.0 magnitude earthquake struck the nation of Haiti. It leveled the city of Port-au-Prince, killed tens of thousands of people, and left the poorest people in the Western Hemisphere poorer still. Within the blink of an eye, a people who have for decades lived through one post-colonial economic and political disaster after another found themselves in the midst of a humanitarian crisis of catastrophic proportions. Today, when you land in Port-au-Prince, you still see rubble everywhere you look. Very few homes have been rebuilt. The presidential palace has a carefully manicured lawn, and there's a helicopter that sits on it. But the gold dome above is cracked, and it's tilted over to one side like it might fall over just at any moment. And surrounding the palace on all sides are overcrowded, dangerous tent cities that fill pretty much every square foot of public space. Very few hotels have running water or electricity. Still fewer homes do. Virtually nobody has sanitation. There is no garbage collection. White UN trucks police the city because there's still no government capacity to police the capital. Nothing about this scene inspires much in the way of hope. Yet, once you get over the initial shock, you realize that this place is humming with life. People are up at the crack of dawn selling their wares, bartering, carrying each other around on every kind of contraption you could imagine, packing their kids off to school in beautifully clean, pressed uniforms. It's hard to imagine how if you're living in a shelter with a dirt floor and no water, you could do that, but they do. They are not only managing to survive, which is no small feat, but they are energetically trying to rebuild their lives with whatever resources they can pull together. And everywhere you look, people are smiling. They're offering hospitality to neighbors and friends and strangers, They're playing soccer with their kids. They're sitting down gratefully together to have a meal made of, um, I think, what you could only describe as subsistence kind of ingredients. And I don't want to say that they're overjoyed. There's a lot of pain, plenty to go around. But here in the midst of unspeakable tragedy and piles of rubble and squalid living conditions that most of us cannot imagine, there is an unmistakable a refulgent and irrepressible joy springing up like fresh green shoots from the parched earth. Really, how is that possible? Think about that. Well, you may be aware that there is a whole happiness movement that's emerging right about now that's attempting to answer that very question by melding what we know about social science and neuroscience and religion to answer the question of what does make for happiness. There are dozens of new books. They're crowding the shelves with titles like The Happiness Project, The Happiness Hypothesis, The Happiness Advantage, and of course, The Happiness Diet. (laughs) There's a big appetite for happiness. And a few months ago, a new independent documentary that's simply titled Happy was released in theaters all around the country. 
It does a nice job of collecting expert perspectives and stories from people all over the world, highlighting what they've learned in their own lives about happiness. And I think if you're interested in that kind of thing, it's worth a look. You can download it from iTunes or Amazon. The upshot of this gathered wisdom is that our collective happiness, at least as measured by psychologists, is about 50% attributable to genetics. It's not surprising that our neurological makeup has a lot to do with our inclination toward happiness. My mother-in-law was a sweet, loving, lovable woman who battled clinical depression pretty much her whole life despite all kinds of interventions and efforts. She just got dealt a bad hand genetically. And she's certainly not alone. Only about 10% of happiness can be attributed to the circumstances of our lives, meaning our economic circumstances, our social standing. That's kind of surprising. I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. And the remaining 40% of our happiness is what the researchers call intentional, meaning it's influenced by what we choose to do individually in our work, in our relationships, in our spiritual practices. The point of all this is that we have a much bigger influence over our own happiness than we think we do. And in particular, we have more ability to recover joy in adversity than we give ourselves credit for. Moreover, the science shows that the things that increase our happiness neurologically The things that jack up the dopamine levels and stimulate the centers of the brain that contribute to our overall feeling of well-being, they are the very things that we already know deep down inside bring us joy. They include feeling what psychologists call flow, the process of realizing our own gifts and fluidly putting them out there into the world to express ourselves or to create something of beauty or to make a difference. They include a sense of connectedness to the natural universe, the joy of human collaboration and human community, the deep sense of calm and centeredness that comes from meditation or other practices that allow us to hear that still, small voice within. And above a certain basic level of material well-being, none of these things takes money. They do take intention, clarity, focus. As you heard, I work for the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee. One of our partners in Port-au-Prince is an organization called Camp Oasis, which was set up to care for 38 orphaned girls following the earthquake. These girls range in age from 9 to 15 years old. Some of them lost their parents in the earthquake, Others are what's called economic orphans, meaning they, even before the earthquake, their parents had placed them in orphanages because they didn't have enough resources to house and feed them. These girls watched as their homes and families and communities were destroyed, and they found themselves living amidst the rubble in the streets or in dangerous aid camps where many of them were raped or otherwise abused. Virtually all of them suffered deep traumas. 
But in the midst of all this, a Haitian businessman, Lionel Poissois, gathered some of his friends and made a commitment to help care for these girls. They secured a walled and gated lot in the middle of the city, and they erected tents and a kitchen and sanitation facilities. They hired house mothers to care for these girls 24 hours a day. They helped them get to school in the morning. They helped them with their homework at night. For the last two years, they have fed and clothed these girls and given them checkups and provided trauma therapy and educated them. And last year, UUSC helped build a dormitory with windows and doors and a bathroom facility with working toilets and showers, which was a first for many of the girls. Lionel has the dream of building a new permanent school on this site where the girls can learn and grow up to be proud Haitians and can contribute to the rebirth of their country. But when I visited the camp last May, the most miraculous thing to me was that these kids not only survived, but they managed somehow to recover an undeniable joy in the midst of all this. When you go there, they're eager to show you their artwork. They're playing and reading and teasing each other like all other kids. They are loving their sisters and their house mothers. They have experienced the most devastating blows to mind, body, and spirit that anyone could withstand. And yet, they've somehow emerged with a sense of what makes life worth living. Incredible little girls. When I was a seminary student, I spent a year working as a resident chaplain at Tampa General Hospital, helping patients deal with pretty much every kind of adversity you could imagine. And I came to realize that it's often the patients who have lived the longest with chronic pain or illness who are the best equipped to handle the next setback. You know, usually they are the most caring, generous, and grounded people you could hope to meet. It seems counterintuitive given all that they've been through. But somehow they've come to terms with the reality that pain and loss go hand in hand and are part and parcel with living. As Denise Levertov said in the reading this morning, dark strand with light, elation, grief, joy, contrition, entwined. Their long experience with adversity has given them a crystalline clarity about what is really important. And they found the ability to go deep inside to find those sources of strength and joy. On the other hand, it's the people like me who have never known chronic hardship and suddenly get hit between the eyes with a cancer diagnosis or the stroke of a loved one who have the toughest time coping. For us, it just seems grossly unfair. You know, this is the kind of thing that happens to other people, but it's not supposed to happen to me. Often this reaction propels us into a frantic search for a different doctor or a miracle cure. Eventually, we come to accept the reality of the situation. But in the meantime, we've lost opportunities to develop our own resources for what might be coming, building support networks and locating those hidden sources of strength. Any therapist or chaplain will tell you that the most important step in restoring joy is to confront the pain honestly, to put it on the table where you can see it and you pick it up and look at it from all sides. 
Because then it will be less intimidating. And then you can find the courage to move through it and begin to uncover those sources of joy. Wayne Muller said, The more we are present with ourselves in fear, without withdrawing, hiding out, or armoring ourselves, the more trust we develop in our own resources. The girls at Camp Oasis have done just that. Faced with the kind of tragedy and loss that could not be avoided, they have become wise beyond their years. Leaning on each other and their caregivers for for support, they're somehow managing to walk through the pain and cultivate a faith in their own creativity and resilience and wisdom. Of course, when it comes to happiness, the problem we face as an American society is that we have constructed a value system and a lifestyle that are overwhelmingly preoccupied with the 10% of happiness that has to do with economic circumstances. The preoccupation is not only misplaced, but it actually distracts us from the real sources of joy. In our hyper-busy culture, the urgent crowds out the important. And our consumer culture has mastered the art of distraction. As an executive at PepsiCo, I am guilty in participating in that. A doctor friend of mine frequently points out that here in the wealthiest nation on earth at a time when our material comfort surpasses anything in history by orders of magnitude, we are suffering a national epidemic of depression, isolation, and loneliness. We see it in recreational drug use. We see it in prescription drug use. Um, The largest brands are antidepressants. We see it in the overconsumption of food and energy and everything else material. Many of us know in our souls that we are losing touch with what's really important and we are avoiding challenges that we really have to face. We sense deep down that something is missing and we're trying to fill the spiritual emptiness physically. It is true that money can buy happiness, at least up to the point at which we have a basic level of physical and financial security. But it turns out that beyond a certain level of income, there is not much relationship between money and happiness. In U.S. terms, a household income, as household income increases from $5,000 a year to $50,000 a year, you see a real change in people's levels of happiness. But between $50,000 and $50 million a year, there is virtually no discernible difference in people's levels of happiness. It's also true that other cultures have managed to find happiness at much lower thresholds of financial security. You may have heard about the Kingdom of Bhutan. Well, 15 years ago, the king decided that instead of measuring his country's success in terms of gross national product, they would measure it by gross national happiness, a measure of the true quality of life. So they've done that. It includes sustainable development and promoting cultural values, conserving the natural environment, establishing good governance. In fact, he was so committed to it that the king actually stepped down because he said, it's better governance if I'm not king. It sounds very cool. But here again, the Haitians have something to teach us. UUSC's largest partner in Haiti is the Popeye Peasants Movement. It's called MPP for short. It's located up in the mountainous central plateau region. 
MPP was founded in the 70s by a wonderful, charismatic guy named Chavon Jean-Baptiste. He set out to organize rural Haitians because they were traditionally the most marginalized of all citizens. And despite death threats and a suppression by various political regimes, Chavon has now built a peasants' movement that is over 100,000 strong. They have a voice today. At the time of the earthquake, MPP was busy developing a demonstration farm for training peasants in sustainable agriculture techniques, organic growing. They're teaching people about farming and how to build irrigation systems, and they operate a tree farm, and they're helping with the reforestation of Haiti, which is a huge need. So when the quake struck and people started fleeing Port-au-Prince for the countryside, Siobhan had the brilliant idea of creating what he called eco-villages, small communities where people could permanently relocate from the city, could build their own homes, do their own farming together, and build sustainable lives. The homes would be earthquake-resistant, built with local labor and materials. It would include potable water systems, community kitchens, and sanitation. You know, in the U.S., we would call this co-housing, but it also has co-farming added to it. UUSC sponsored the first village of 10 homes, and over the course of the last year, our UU volunteers, some 90 of them, have worked side-by-side Haitian families to help build them. It has been really exciting to see these villages rise out of the ground and to see families moving in. And it's been gratifying to see that other aid organizations have picked up on this example and are joining the cause. Earlier this year, the Presbyterian Church agreed to sponsor 40 homes. Um, We're looking to build the next village ourselves. Um, European NGOs are coming in and bringing volunteers and funding. The Haitian government has taken notice, which is a first. And even the New York Times picked up on a story about this as a successful demonstration project in an article that was published on Christmas Eve. But what's most exciting is that these families are creating sustainable livelihoods that are not dependent on any government or foreign business or black market. They are relying on their own ingenuity and sweat. In the community they're creating, there is no monetary threshold for happiness. Their happiness will be determined by how successful they are in raising organic food, by their ability to reforest and restore the land, by the full expression of their individual gifts and service to this community, the bonds they form with one another, how they raise and educate their children, and by the hopeful example that they're creating for other Haitians and people all over the world who are displaced by disaster. I think they stand a pretty good chance of finding real happiness along the way. Surely, if... Haitians can do that with all that they have been through. I can do that. I hope never to experience anything like what the girls in Camp Oasis have had to endure. But their example helps me realize that I can survive more than I might think. It restores my faith that joy can return if I have the courage to face the pain and to walk through it. I have to admit that I am not quite ready to go live in a Haitian eco-village just yet. I'd have to shake off a lot of my own cultural norms before that could happen. But watching these folks build whole new lives for themselves, literally building from the ground up, 
has given me pause to think about the sources of joy in my own life. Mostly these examples of these wonderful Haitian people remind me what's possible. When we clear away the distractions, when we find our own creative gifts and give them full expression, when we are connected to this natural creation, when we experience the joy of human collaboration in community, when we create a quiet space to hear that still, small voice within. May ours, may yours, be a religious community that helps us create space for that small voice. May we help each other face adversity. May we find the courage to do it. And may we nurture each other, every one of us, on the path to recovering joy in our own lives. May it be so, and amen.